101.1 FM and KXRW LP Vancouver at 99.9 FM. Streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Jean hoped the Texas foster care system would keep her safe, but she says it didn't. Child protective services, <laughs> you know, they damage us more than they help us. Jean ran away like thousands of other foster kids, but on the street, they're in even more danger. There's going to be someone, a pimp out there, that's going to just blow their minds, and the next thing you know, they're strung out on drugs and doing whatever this pimp tells them to do. All over Texas, kids like Gene are being exploited by traffickers, while state officials bicker about money. We have to spend the funding now, Senator. I cannot say this strongly enough. We've got to see results. We look into the foster care crisis on this episode of Reveal. But first, this news. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Reporter Edgar Walters spent a good part of last year trying to reach a woman named Jean Hall. I have been trying to reach Jean. I think I understand she may be in Paris, Texas these days. Yeah. Um, have she you... was. Oh, you know, God. Through Facebook, she connected to me through Facebook. But now it's been probably, I don't I want to say six months or more since since I've seen her on Facebook. He tried her friends, he tried her uncle. Finally, he got in touch with her lawyer. So, did you end up meeting with Jean Hall? Yes, I did. And I uh, told her that you had called. Okay. And uh, gave her your information. 
Edgar was working on a story about the child welfare system in Texas, and he'd found Gene's story buried in thousands of pages of court documents. He wanted to talk to her in person about what she's been through. Gauging from her reactions, it did seem like she was interested in talking or... Uh, it was hard to say. Gene's a pretty damaged young woman. Finally, after four months, Edgar finds out Jean is living with her mom in a trailer park. And it turns out they do live right on the edge of Paris, Texas, a sleepy rural town near the border with Oklahoma. To Edgar's surprise, Jean invites him to come visit. I was telling my mom because at first I wasn't going to call you back. <laughs> Jean's got pale skin and freckles. She's slender and so small, she almost disappears into the big blue armchair in her living room. For months, she's been afraid to talk. But now that she and Edgar are face-to-face, she seems ready to open up. And uh, I was in there telling my mom, I'm like, man, I, I'm 21 years old, and I still, to this day, have everything just gets piled back up and piled back up and piled back up. Everything that Jean's been through comes back to her traumatic childhood and a child welfare system that failed to help her. It's a difficult story to hear and not appropriate for all listeners. But Jean's still trying to be positive. She shows Edgar her tattoos. I have this on my ankle. It's cherry hearts, one for each one of my kids. And then I have my daughter's name on my back. She's planning on getting another tattoo of the word love. Love just represents, you know, everything that I've been through, and I still have the heart of gold. The state has been a part of Jean's life for almost 10 years, but she sees her time here in foster care as especially damaging. Across the country, there are hundreds of thousands of kids adrift in foster care, and Texas has especially big problems. Every week, more than 20 kids run away from foster care here. A lot of them end up on the street and find themselves forced to sell sex to survive. Our partners at the Texas Tribune have been investigating why so many foster kids end up being exploited by traffickers and how the child welfare system fails kids like Jean. You're not protecting me. You're not protecting my family. Child Protective Services, <laughs> you know, they're not there for the children. They damage us more than they help us. Edgar Walters of the Texas Tribune picks up Jean's story. Jean rocks slowly back and forth in her chair as she opens up. She smokes a cigarette and gets up every few minutes to shoo away one of her cats. Her mom mostly stays in the other room, except to check in on her a couple of times. Love you, Mama. <laughs> Even as our conversation takes a dark turn, Jean stays upbeat. She laughs a lot during our interview. But that abruptly changes when I bring up one thing, her dad. You know, my, my dad was, we were close. I mean, he drove a school bus for the school that I went to. I rode the school bus to school with him. I rode the school bus home with him. Jean's parents were separated, and she'd lived with her mom when she was young. But her mom struggled with drug addiction, so Jean moved in with her dad when she was nine. No one ever imagined what would happen next. Her father pulled her out of school, and over the next five years, he raped her, repeatedly. Eventually, he got her pregnant. 
And so I, um... It's hard for Jean to talk about. Oh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. My colleague, Nina Satija, tries to apologize for bringing back all those memories. But it's Jean who reassures us. No, you're fine, you're fine. It's, um, it's okay. Jean gave birth to a baby girl in July 2009. She was 13. Child Protective Services, or CPS, came to investigate her pregnancy a few times. But Jean says whenever they questioned her, her dad was close by. She was too afraid to say anything. It took a year before she got the courage to go to the police. They immediately called CPS, and Jean and her daughter Bridget were placed in a foster home together. I wanted to think that CPS was actually going to be there for me and do something good for me, and they didn't. I should explain something here. Texas handles foster care differently than any other state in the country by splitting kids into two categories. One is for temporary care. Those kids will probably go back to their families or be adopted. They get a lawyer, a special advocate, and regular hearings in front of a judge. Jean was in a different category, called Permanent Managing Conservatorship, or PMC. The key word is permanent. As PMC girls, or PMC kids, period, were there till we turned 18. And it was like CPS didn't want to... They didn't want to make it any better for us, or they didn't want to make us feel like we were at home. These kids don't go back to their families. Most of them don't get a lawyer or advocate. And oftentimes, they bounce between at least five different placements in foster care. In just two years, Jean and Bridget stayed with three foster families. Then they were moved to a short-term shelter, and after that, to a group home with about a dozen other kids. You read those children's files and you just cannot believe that they are still standing on this earth after what they've experienced. That's Alicia Fry, who runs the group home where Jean stayed. She remembers Jean's struggles and what pushed her over the edge. We'll never know the full story, but while Jean was in foster care, CPS decided to take her daughter Bridget away from her. And um, I began to have suicidal thoughts. Jean felt like CPS had failed her. She remembered how her dad had stopped her from reporting him for years through manipulation and threats. My dad used to tell me, you know, if, yeah, you can go tell uh, what's what's going on, but, you know, CPS is going to take you. They're going to take your daughter from you. And exactly what my father told me they would do, they did. When Jean lost her daughter, whatever progress she might have made at Jonathan's place disappeared. And Alicia knew what could happen next. You were trying to instill in these girls that they're amazing and that they're strong and they can do anything. And I know that if we don't do it, then I'm going to lose these girls to the street. That's what happened to Jean. Jean and another foster kid decided to run. A friend had told them they could go stay with this woman named Jasmine. Jasmine had a place on the other side of town, where people with nowhere to go could just hang out. So one night, 
Jean stuffed her backpack with her nicest things. In the morning, she got dropped off at school, but she didn't go to class. Instead, she walked down the road to this bus stop on Waterhouse Road. She was clutching a piece of paper with Jasmine's address. Jean took the city bus, two different trains, and then another city bus to a rough neighborhood in Southeast Dallas. She arrived at a duplex with a red door. After gathering her courage, she knocked. So the first girl came was Jean. That's Jasmine Johnson. I got the chance to interview her a few months ago, and she called Jean the first girl because another girl showed up later that day. She was a foster kid too. I let, I let everybody come to my house. You know what I'm saying? It was an open house. You know what I'm saying? If you ain't had nowhere to go, I let you stay at my house on Gonzalez Street. We call it G Street. Jasmine let Jean have fun on Gonzalez Street. Jean got a new look. She dyed her hair so no one would recognize her. She got her nails done. And she got new clothes, short dresses and high heels. But Jean couldn't stay at Jasmine's house for free. She'd have to pay rent, $60 a night. And Jasmine said the girls that stayed with her made their money at strip clubs all over Dallas. I asked them, did they have IDs so I could put them into strip club with my girls or whatever. So, so they can have a job or something. You just can't be laying up in my house and not make no money. Jean didn't have an ID. She was only 15. She says Jasmine told her she had only one other choice, selling sex. Before I tell you what happened next, I want to back up for a second, because this might seem crazy. But imagine you're a teenage runaway hundreds of miles from home. You're hungry and you need a place to sleep. Then a stranger offers you those things. It sounds like they're trying to help, but they exploit you instead. And like Jean, you end up doing things you'd never imagine. At the state capitol in Austin, lawmakers are starting to pay attention. All right. Mr. Chairman uh, and members, uh, we have a, a joint charge. State representatives even held a hearing about it last year. <clears throat> Study and evaluate the practice of youth being recruited into human trafficking. Specifically evaluate the scope of the pipeline of potential victims from, from foster care. If you didn't catch what that lawmaker said, it was the pipeline of potential victims from foster care. In other words, lawmakers wanted to study why kids in the state's foster care system end up exploited by pimps. All right, we'll start with invited testimony. Um, so state your name for the record and proceed. Thank you. Uh, my name is Angela Goodwin, and I am the Director of Investigations at Child Protective Services. Angela Goodwin explained to lawmakers that most sex trafficking victims have been sexually abused. And a lot of them have had contact with the child welfare system. In other words, they're kids like Jean. She also said when kids run away, they're often approached by a pimp almost immediately, usually within 48 hours. So why is that important to the foster care system? Because we now know through these statistics coming in that when a child runs from our care, we have to look for them right away, immediately. Texas doesn't even come close to finding missing foster kids that quickly. Last year, it took an average of six weeks to find them, and hundreds of foster kids who ran away weren't found. I asked Goodwin about this. I mean, is six weeks acceptable, or what would be acceptable? Well, 
right away is acceptable. <laughs> yeah. um, and then based on the statistic that I gave you, I mean, it, when you're getting past 48 hours, it's a very dangerous time. Goodwin told us CPS is working more aggressively to find runaways. But the agency couldn't even say how many missing foster kids actually got reported to the proper authorities last year. In Jean's case, social workers at her group home did call the police as soon as they realized she was missing that day. But by then, she'd already been taken in by a pimp, Jasmine Johnson. And I mean, Jasmine, she didn't care. She just pretty much, you know, you're going to do this and that's what you're going to do in order to stay here and CPS treating us the way that they treated us. I was willing to do whatever I needed to do to stay away. Jean quickly developed a routine on Gonzales Street, but she wasn't Jean anymore. Jasmine had given her a new name, Bunny. Every day when it started to get dark, she would head outside in her new clothes. She'd slowly walk through the neighborhood, past some apartments and a basketball court, toward the mini-mart on the corner. The street that Gonzales is off of, I'd walk from there back towards the right, and I'd just pretty much back and forth, back and forth. Sometimes, if a John stopped his car on the street corner, the transaction happened right there. Other times, the client drove her back to his place. It was $100 for an hour and $60 for 30 minutes. Jean had sex with a few different men, but she got scared. She remembers one guy who brought her back to his apartment. After a few minutes, he was really creeping her out. She thought she was in danger. I ended up telling him I was going to the bathroom and left and walked all the way back to the house. So I'm getting out of here. Yeah. I don't like this. And it started getting real scary for me. Jean decided she didn't want to stay at Jasmine's house anymore. So now 16 years old, she packed up her things and went to stay with an ex-boyfriend in another part of Dallas. But after a couple of nights, his parents kicked her out. She was walking back to Jasmine's place in the dark when a driver pulled up and offered her a ride. They were just around the corner from Gonzales Street when police pulled over the driver for not using his turn signal. They found Jean in the back seat. She told police what was going on at Jasmine's house, and she ended up helping them investigate. This is Detective Bordelon, badge number 6132, and Detective McMurray, badge number 4835, with complainant Jean Hall. The detectives asked Jean to call Jasmine, who also went by the name Jay. They wanted help collecting evidence. Hello. Hey, is this Jay? Yeah, this is Jay. Who is this? Bunny. Who? Bunny. I don't know you, bro. Oh, my gosh. Jay, please just talk to me, because I haven't done anything. I've got caught. Jasmine suspected Jean might be working with police after she left the house, so she pretended not to know Jean. But after officers later raided the house, Jasmine admitted Jean had stayed there. Jasmine was eventually convicted of trafficking a minor for sex. As for Jean, she was sent back to foster care and almost immediately ran away again. Then she was sent to an institution for troubled foster kids, but she ran away once more. Jean felt completely isolated, like no one could understand what she was going through. 
So she was amazed when we told her. Children's advocates believe there are thousands of other kids with stories like hers. In fact, lawyers filed a lawsuit on behalf of all 12,000 kids in long-term foster care. They said the system had routinely violated children's civil rights. And in 2015, a federal judge agreed. Federal Judge Janice Graham Jack ruled the state's foster care system unconstitutional, stating in her scathing opinion, the system is broken and has been for decades, and children almost uniformly leave state custody more damaged than when they entered. The lead plaintiff in that lawsuit has a story a lot like Jean's. She was a teenage foster kid who ran away from a group home and ended up on the street. A pimp found her and sold her for sex. The judge wrote, these stories are typical of the foster care system in Texas. And she's ordered sweeping reforms. She said the state needs to give long-term foster kids a lot more support. That includes a lawyer and an advocate for each of them. The question is, do Texas lawmakers want to pay? Okay. <laughs> Good morning, members. Um, Senate Finance Committee will come to order. Clerk, please call the roll. Senator Nelson? Here. Senator That's Jane Nelson, a Republican state senator with the most power over the Texas budget. A few months ago, she called in the head of the Texas Child Welfare Agency for a hearing. His name is Hank Whitman. And he asked lawmakers for more than a billion dollars to make improvements. That would increase his budget by more than 25%. This is a, a problem that's been going on for three decades. If we keep delaying, we'll never get there. He pointed out that other states spend more. Texas pays group homes up to $260 a day to care for troubled kids. California and Florida pay almost twice that. Whitman also wanted more money to hire child abuse investigators because Texas fails to check on hundreds of kids each day who may be in immediate danger. We have to spend the funding now, Senator. Otherwise, these children will end up in the criminal justice system and they're there for life. I cannot say this strongly enough. Senator Jane Nelson cuts him off. We want to see results. Hear me. We don't have time for any more of this other stuff. We need to find those kids. Your agency gets a total of $3.8 billion. Hank Whitman said, that's not enough to do the job. We either pay now or we pay later before somebody loses their life. I wanted to talk to Senator Jane Nelson about funding for child welfare in Texas, but she declined my request for an interview. So did Texas Governor Greg Abbott. But Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton did agree to an interview if we flew hundreds of miles to meet him at a public event. So we sent our political reporter, Patrick Svitek. Oh, great. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you again. Thanks for making a little time for us. Appreciate it. Patrick asked Paxton about the importance of funding foster care in Texas and what that means for fighting sex trafficking. So I'm in an interesting spot. I don't get to decide policy. What I do is I enforce whatever the, you know, the legislature gives me authority to do. So I would love for, for more to be done with, mm -hmm. with human trafficking. Specifically with funding or just mean in general? Just, just in general, everything. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's devastating to our, to our state, to our community. It's um, so sad. Mm -hmm. um, I, I certainly, the more we can do to, to save these, especially young women, mm -hmm. the better. Saving these young women is exactly what that lawsuit against Texas foster care was meant to do. But after a judge ordered the state to make sweeping reforms, Ken Paxton fought them. 
He's delayed and appealed the judge's directions again and again. He says as the state's top lawyer, he has a responsibility to fight lawsuits. Paxton says it's not his job to fix foster care. Instead, he's focusing on going after criminals, the pimps who exploit kids. Under his leadership, Texas has convicted more and more every year. But police on the ground say that approach only goes so far. But you've got to arrest an awful lot of people to have a dent on that. That's Detective Michael McMurray. He's been sending pimps to prison for more than a decade, and he worked on Gene's case. But he thinks kids will continue to be exploited as long as the foster care system remains broken. The McMurray theory of fixing this problem was going to be, we'll put all these pimps, all these traffickers in prison, and the word will get out, and people won't be doing this anymore because they'll be too afraid to go to prison, and that'll solve the problem. But the other part of that, you know, finding a place to put the kids, treating the kids, getting uh, mental health services, it's not there. And the McMurray theory is not working out too well. The McMurray theory didn't work out well for Jean either. After police recovered her from Jasmine's house and she ran away from her foster home again, the state eventually agreed to let her live with her mom. She was done with foster care. Jean testified in her pimp's trial. Jasmine Johnson was convicted of trafficking a minor for sex and sent to prison for 25 years. But the whole experience made Jean feel even more like a victim. Ms. here you go. Here's your subpoena. We're gonna need you to come testify. Oh, and that's so, well, I'm not going. Well, if you don't go, you're going to jail. Okay, well, whatever, you know. Thanks, y'all. So much for the victims, right? Jean wishes she'd gotten help finishing school and finding a job. She had no way to support herself. Jean had another child, a son, but she also got into drugs. So the last time we saw her, she was in the Lamar County Courthouse in Paris, Texas. Nina and I went to meet her at her 9 a.m. hearing. Did she give you a number? When we get into the courtroom, we see Jean sitting on the other side, her head in her hands. She's been charged with possession of methamphetamines. The hearing only lasts a couple of minutes. We aren't allowed to record. Suddenly, Jean runs out of the courtroom, so we follow her. And when she sees us, she gives us each a big, long hug. Through her tears, Jean tells us she's going to plead guilty to her charges and spend at least six months in a state jail with a rehab program. It's a good program from what everybody's told me. It's been away from my babies. She thinks rehab would really help her, but it's hours away. Jean's already lost her daughter. She doesn't want to be away from her son. His birthday is in a couple of days, so she asks if she can go to jail after that. And the prosecutors agree. We walk out of the Paris, Texas courthouse into the pouring rain. All of a sudden, Jean runs out into the middle of the street, smiling, her arms outstretched. It seems like she's trying to take advantage of these last moments of freedom. Hi, sister. 
Those last words, I hate this town. That story from the Texas Tribune's Edgar Walters and Nina Satija. Jean's been in jail now for a couple of months, and she's not allowed to take phone calls or see visitors yet. It turns out, a lot of sex trafficking victims in Texas can only get the help they need in jail. And when we come back, we'll go behind prison walls to meet a woman who's helping girls like Jean piece their lives back together. This is how we do it. This is how we do it. La, 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 la. <laughs> I love Miss Gabby. <laughs> That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting in PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. Jean Hall's ordeal with the broken foster care system in Texas is not an isolated case. It happens all the time. A federal judge has declared the system inhumane and unconstitutional. There aren't enough beds for foster kids, partly because it's so underfunded. And that's one reason foster care in Texas has become a pipeline to sexual exploitation. Take Lene. And we're using her middle name to protect her privacy. Now, her story is not appropriate for all listeners. Lene became a foster kid at 13 and spent almost a year at an institution for troubled teens. But no foster family would take her in. I was just tired of being there. I had finished the program. Nobody else would accept me. So I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. I ran away. Lene left for school one day, but instead of going to class, she just started walking down the street just like Jean did when she ran away, within minutes. I actually met um, a guy, and he told me, oh, I love you, I care for you, I'm going to be there for you. If you ever need anything, just let me know. Well, I told him I had, I was a runaway. I didn't have anywhere to go. The guy told Lene she could stay with him if she brought in some money. Over the next three years, at least three different men trafficked Lene for sex. Every few months, she would go back to foster care, sometimes on her own, or police might bring her back. Then she'd run away again. Only a few months ago, she finally landed in a place she feels safe. And she starts believing she can move forward. I don't want to run the streets. I really want to finish school. I'm very smart. I want to go to college. I want to go to Prairie View A&M. Tell them what you want to study. I want to study it for forensic investigations. 
That woman who jumped in is Kathy Griffin. No, not the comedian. This Kathy is an advocate who works with sex trafficking victims. Kathy changed everything for Lene. She started talking to the girls about how we have to change. Nobody can make us change. You can sit in the program and act like you're going to change. For what? You've got to want to change. It's got to come from the inside. When you get outside, that's when, that's where the test starts. The test starts when you walk outside, and this is my test. Lene's saying all this at a place where she's met other young women who share her struggles, where men can no longer prey on her, where she's found a mentor. There's just one problem. That place is the Harris County Jail in Houston, Texas. Nina Satija, based at the Texas Tribune, picks up the story from here. The Harris County Jail is the third largest in the country. It's got about 10,000 inmates at any given time, like a little village right in the center of downtown Houston. You said the fourth floor is where the, all the women are? Yeah, uh, yes, where the women. Hi, how are you? When I get a tour of the jail, Lene's been behind bars for almost four months. She shares a room called a pod with two dozen other women. She sleeps on a metal bunk bed and wears an oversized jumpsuit. Lene ended up here because one day last August, she offered a man oral sex in exchange for money. He turned out to be an undercover police officer and he arrested her for prostitution. She was only 17, which is the age that people are considered adults under Texas criminal law, so she went to jail. When we peek into Lene's pod, you can tell she's the baby of the group. Several women are surrounding her, braiding her hair into this elegant crown on the top of her head. No one wants kids like Lene in jail, especially not child advocates. But police and prosecutors say they don't trust the foster care system to protect kids who've been trafficked. So police look for a way to charge them with something. In jail, Lene can't run, her pimp can't get to her, and she can meet mentors like Kathy. She's motivated. At first, I wanted to leave the program. I was like, ah, this isn't for me. I don't want to change. When I met Miss Kathy, it changed my whole perspective about the program. If she could do it, I could do it. If she could do it, I could do it. One reason Kathy connects so quickly with kids like Lene is she's been through some of the same stuff. For decades, her life was unstable, ruled by a cocaine addiction. I was a theater major. Then I, I went on the cold-blooded tour with Rick James in 83, where my serious addiction started because everybody in the industry got high. And then when the lights and the cameras were all gone in the tours, I still had an addiction that had to be met and fed. So it took me from Beverly Hills to behind the trash dumpster. You can find Kathy's mugshots online. She looks disoriented and her clothes are rumpled. Now, more than 10 years later, she's always stylishly dressed, wearing super high heels. She still has a scratchy voice. She says it's from smoking thousands of dollars worth of dope a month for more than two decades, paid for mostly by selling sex. I rockstituted. Rockstituted? What does that mean? <laughs> that means if they didn't have money, they could exchange uh, sexual favors for drugs. Okay. I've done everything from high-end escorts, being a kept woman to prostitution, rockstitution. The only thing I didn't do was strip. Eventually, Kathy got clean. She was one of the first participants in a drug diversion court in Houston. Now, she runs programs for women who've been involved in prostitution. 
They're all different ages. And she comes across foster kids or former foster kids a lot. One, two, three. This is our road way to One of Kathy's programs is called Roadway to Freedom. I got to see it in action recently at a women's prison in Dayton, Texas. There's about 100 women singing here in white jumpsuits. When Kathy starts speaking, and y'all look so pretty, everyone just lights up. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all got y'all little makeup on? Yeah. Got lipstick on? Y'all got The Crayola and colored pencils line isn't a joke. Women in prison don't have makeup, so that's what some of them use to put on eyeliner and eyeshadow. Kathy tells me a lot of women in here are sex trafficking victims. And a lot of them were let down by the child welfare system. The foster care system is so severely broken. Just about everybody in here that went through foster care has had sexual abuse, and they were running away from it. Lene fits that profile. She was adopted at a young age and says her adoptive parents abused her, physically and sexually. She used to run away from home all the time. So later on, when she wasn't getting help in foster care, it made sense to her to run again, even if it meant selling sex instead. Kathy understands that, and she tells Lene. Does it make you sad to, to think sometimes that your childhood was stolen from you? It does. And I've learned to accept the fact that I can't get it, I can't take what happened back, but I can, only move, I can only move forward. You have stayed focused from the time that I brought you to the program. And that's very rare. I want you all to know that's very rare for somebody as young as she is to stay as disciplined. There's an irony to what Kathy's saying right now, because she knows the only reason she was able to find Lene and become her mentor is because lene has been locked up in jail for four months. When coming to jail is like starting over brand new for you, especially at your age. But as Kathy and Lene are talking, Lene's about to get released from jail. And because Lene's only 17, she's still a foster kid. She has to go back into state custody first. The problem is there isn't a bed available for her. Dozens of foster kids in Texas face this situation each month. Because there's no room for them in a foster home, they have to sleep in a hotel or in a caseworker's office. In Lene's case, she'll have to sleep in a child welfare office in Houston. The kids who stay there all have to sleep on cots in this one big room that can fit maybe 20 at a time. I mean, why would that happen? We're working with what we have. I mean, I'm not trying to be flip. I don't know another way to put that. That's Angela Goodwin, a top official at the Texas Child Welfare Agency. She says the state can't create more beds for foster kids. That's up to the private sector. Things are even worse for kids who've been sexually exploited. We have a very limited number of specialized beds for human trafficking victims. We have about 20 available north of Houston in a place called Freedom Place. We have about six in a foster home situation in East Texas. And that's it. 
Kids sleeping in a caseworker's office don't get supervised like they would at a real foster home, so it's easier for them to run away. The state wouldn't tell me how many foster kids run away when they're living in an office, but I asked the Houston Police Department. In just two months, police say dozens of kids ran away from the office where Lene will be staying. Kathy tells Lene she hopes she won't run. What's going to keep you from running from this facility? Support. I've always had my caseworker support, but it's just like I wanted more support. I just felt like you were missing me. I think so, Miss Kathy. I think I was missing you. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy's worried that once Lene gets out of jail, she won't be able to reach her. So she'll have no way of knowing if Lene is safe. Later, she tells me there's got to be a place where Lene can get help that isn't jail. This is the best place for you to reach them, but it's also a place where they're locked up. But what is more important than any of this is we have got to have beds for individuals that are coming out so that we can continue the process and keep things running smoothly because it took them a long time to get messed up. We must have beds. That aren't in jail. That aren't in jail. A few months later, I go to see Kathy again. She's a busy woman, so the best way to catch up with her is when she's heading out of one of her programs at the prison or the jail. We're in a parking lot when Kathy gets a phone call. It's from another young girl she's trying to help by convincing her not to run away, to stay put. That street will eat you alive, you feel me? And just keep me informed so I'll be able to still keep up with you and help you. All right, precious? Stop running so much, okay? Be still so somebody can love on you for a while, okay? Kathy hangs up the phone and closes her eyes for a second. If they would give me some beds, I could be able to work miracles. Even with everything Kathy does to help these young women, there's a lot of forces working against them. Lene had promised Kathy she'd call her once she left jail and got to that child welfare office, but Lene never called. Instead, she walked out of the office just a few hours after she got there. I remember you telling her, like, you know, you're one of the more focused people, despite being so young, you're one of the more focused people in jail that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. It felt that way. So that's why it was just such a bummer when she just took off like that. And see, when they're so young and I can't put them in where the rest of the girls are, they fall through the cracks. Yeah. And that's the piece I need fixed. Yeah. I I mean, it it doesn't do me any good to, at least I plant seeds, but... If they live to come back, right, you know. Lene turned 18 last December, just a few weeks after she walked out of that office. She's still missing, and her Facebook page suggests she's still being trafficked. But Kathy isn't giving up hope. She's planning to open a shelter for girls just like Lene that can get them help outside of jail. It'll be called Kathy's House. That story was produced by Reveal's Nina Satija, based at the Texas Tribune. Since a version of this story was first published, state lawmakers have given the Texas Child Welfare Agency an extra $500 million. That's about half of what they asked for. 
They also created a $3 million grant program to give child sex trafficking victims services like health care and counseling. It's the first time the state has funded a program like this. In Texas, jail was the only place Lene could find the help she needed. Other states like Minnesota are doing everything they can to keep sex trafficked kids out of jail by looking at them as victims, not criminals. That part of the story when we come back on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Tough subject today. Sex traffickers have been known to trap and exploit children. And once a child is in, it is extremely hard to get them out of that life. Many of these kids are runaways who've been bounced around from foster care, group homes, and state custody. Some end up in drug rehab and mental health treatment centers and often behind bars. This is something our partners at APM Reports looked into. They found that some states, including Minnesota, are taking a different approach. Those states are treating these young people as victims instead of criminals. The reason tape records us so that I have a record of us talking today, okay? That's Sergeant Grant Snyder. He's interviewing a 17-year-old runaway. Let's just go back and tell me the story about, you know, from you guys running from Eau Claire. Tell me what happened. Um... They're in an interview room at a Minneapolis police station. It's a small space with no windows, the size of a walk-in closet. They're sitting at a small round table. I've been locked up all the time since I've been 14. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm running, you know? Bobby Joe Larson ran away from a drug treatment center in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And by the time Snyder found her, she was selling sex. She was posting escort ads on the web and working with a guy she calls E. When did you start posting ads when you were with E? Um, I don't really know. Yeah. Like the next day after you met him, a couple of days, do you think? Probably like the next day or something. He was like, I've never really like dealt with it. So he told you he'd never done it before? He's told me he's like been around like prostitutes and stuff, but he told me I'm not a pimp, I'm a player. Okay. <laughs> so first of all, that's not true. He's been doing it for a long time. Okay. You understand? Mm-hmm. Bobby hasn't slept. She's high on four different drugs and hasn't eaten in days. She does not want to hear Sergeant Snyder trash talk the guy she was with. He didn't force me to do nothing. Okay, I understand that. This is something I know a little bit about, so I want you to listen to me. Okay? Any guy that allows a young lady like yourself to be victimized like that, to do degrading things, 
you know, that, that speaks of their character. You understand that, right? You know what I'm saying is true, don't you? Because you said when you're with these guys that it makes you feel I've talked to, like I told you, hundreds of women over the years. You know, they all say three things to me, okay? I'm only doing this because of the money. I wish I could do anything else, but they can't because of the money that's involved. And it makes me feel How many of those things are accurate for you? All three. Exactly. After that interview, Bobby is sent to a group home two hours north of the Twin Cities. Almost immediately, she runs. This time, she ends up in the hands of even more dangerous men. They put an ad for Bobby on Backpage, an online hub for commercial sex. Sergeant Snyder finds her two weeks later, and she's back in the interview room. You don't want to be out here doing this. It's dangerous. You got raped this time. You got a gun put against your head. The world is filled with evil and you know that because you've met most of them, right? Yeah. And, and these people aren't your friends. We've told you this before. We are your friends, even though right now you're irritated with me because I'm asking you questions. And, we sure, and that's how I've always been. Okay. So but, but so we haven't lied to you. We, when you run away, we keep looking for you. And we find you and we bring you back. Okay? Sergeant Snyder is not going to charge Bobby with a crime. In many places around the country, it's still routine for girls who sell sex to face delinquency hearings. But Snyder doesn't want to punish Bobby. So I argue that our primary objective has to be that victim and that our that we're the tool for that victim, not the victim being a tool for us to meet our aims. The victim he's talking about is Bobby. When Grant Snyder became a cop 20 years ago, he didn't think prostitution was a victimless crime. The victim was the public, the homeowner, the city. But he kept winding up in that interview room with women and girls who had awful stories to tell. And he began to think there was another victim here, even if the girls themselves didn't think so. Victims who are now survivors, who have come out of the life and have come out of a a history of trauma and exploitation, have been very patient in helping me to understand exactly what things look like through their eyes. When he met Bobby, she was traumatized and afraid of the police. This is more of the recording of the first time when Sergeant Snyder brought Bobby to the station. No, I mean, I understand, like, I'm not doing anything right in this situation. You like, know what, though? You're, you're a victim for me, okay? You're a victim. I told you that. So I don't want anybody mistreating you. Bobby says she had a bad experience with the police before meeting Sergeant Snyder, and that made it hard for her to trust a cop. She talked about that in an interview last year. The officers kind of just threw me up against the wall and kept, like, slamming my head into the wall. That drew the line, and I was like, I'm not going to trust any police officer. That, you know, even if you do wear a badge, you have no right to treat someone like that. The first time Snyder caught Bobby, it didn't seem like she was listening, but it turned out she was. The number one thing that I will always remember is him saying, from this day on, you will be protected. Snyder caught Bobby five times before she stopped running away, back to people who would exploit her all over again. I don't know if it was because I was so brainwashed that I was finally okay with it. You know, after the first few times, I was like, this is how I'm going to end up living my life for the rest of my life, and I'm okay with it. So I didn't even think twice that I'm a victim. But eventually, Sergeant Grant reached Bobby. His message got through. She stopped running, and she got treatment for drug addiction. You, you learn not to trust anyone um, on the street. So an officer or 
a counselor or anyone can't expect that trust right away. That's going to come with time. Sergeant Snyder put in the time and was eventually able to gain Bobby's trust. And Bobby is grateful to the cop who wouldn't give up. His heart was so big, and at that point in my life, that's all I needed. And that's all I was looking for from day one is love and a big heart, and I saw that with him. So, honestly, I don't know why I opened up, but I did. Sergeant Snyder uses what he's learned to help others fight sex trafficking. He trains law enforcement and attorneys around the country and is a frequent speaker at events like this one at a suburban high school. Victims are incredibly resourceful and Bobby Larson ran away from Eau Claire Academy within a period of one hour. She ran away in an orange jumpsuit that said Eau Claire Academy on the back of it. Within one hour, she'd met a woman who gave her money so she could buy clothes. She got a phone from somebody, got on a chat line, met a guy she'd never talked to before and convinced him to drive from St. Paul to Eau Claire to pick her and her friend up and drive him back to Minneapolis. I can't even get my kid to put the dirty dishes in the sink, okay? And they accomplished all that in an hour. When we checked in with Bobby Joe Larson last year, she'd been out of prostitution and drug-free for around two years. She'd done a lot of thinking about what had made her so vulnerable to being trafficked. Partly, it was that she wanted to get high and because she wanted to get out of group homes and treatment centers. But she wanted something else, too. In a way, I felt really beautiful that all these guys are paying to, you know, get services from me or the pimps. I thought at the time they loved me. So even though I had, I've always had a really good loving family, I was adopted at a young age. So that was something I also struggled with. Like, why did my parents give up on me and not love me, my biological parents? And it seemed like my, you know, adoptive family, it wasn't enough. Pimps prey on these insecurities, showering their victims with phony love. The attention, along with the grip of drug addiction, led Bobby back to E a few times. E, whose real name is Broderick Boucher Robinson, eventually pled guilty to promoting prostitution. There's a real reticence to place blame where that blame really should lie. And it's very visible in human trafficking because many of the victims that we deal with make bad choices. And simply because you're a 13-year-old who ran away from uh, home doesn't mean that you should be victimized by somebody. Doesn't mean you should end up on Backpage. Doesn't mean you should end up in, in a hotel room or on Lake Street or something where people can exploit you commercially. Other folks in government and law enforcement around the country are beginning to see things the same way as Sergeant Snyder. More than a dozen states have stopped charging minors with prostitution. Bobby Joe Larson is now 22 years old. Last we heard, she and her fiancé were living in an apartment above Main Street in a quiet southern Minnesota town. We want to thank Bobby for sharing her story. She hopes it will help others. The original version of Bobby Joe Larson's story was produced by Sasha Aslanian and edited by Catherine Winter of APM Reports. It was updated by Reveal's Michael Schiller. Nina Satija was our lead producer on today's show with help from Edgar Walters and Morgan Smith. They're based at the Texas Tribune. Our editor was Taki Telenitas. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins. My man, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Claire C. Note Mullen with help from Catherine Ray Mondo. 
Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell is our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story. X-Ray.
Republican Senators Jerry Moran and Mike Lee both pledging Monday night to vote against the GOP health care bill, defections that may essentially kill the plan. The two senators breaking with their party means the 